Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more will we explore together with your host, Emmanuel Padilla, and la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Charlie Dates and Dr. Eric Rivera to discuss their approaches to black and brown church tradition. We ask, how do we cherish our black and Latino heritage in the midst of an ever-popularizing multi-ethnic church movement? How do we continue to build bridges between the black and brown community? And they share stories about their own journey of cultural formation as pastors. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Brothers, welcome to the show. I have the privilege here of greeting and welcoming my pastor, uh, Dr. Eric Vera, pastor over at the Brook. And another brother that I have great respect for that I've always seen from a distance. I was a student at the same time as he was doing finishing up his doctoral research over at Trinity. And so I'd also like to welcome Dr. Charlie Dates. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, man. Always a joy to be in Eric's company. And so uh, glad I get <laughs> to do so with you guys today. Now, Dr. Dates, I got to ask you a question here. I ask it to all of those that we've been inviting. How comfortable are you with the Spanish, brother? Because, you know, we, we go in and out. So so I'm, I'm waiting to hear what, what's the level there. Yeah, you know, if it were 10 years ago, I, I'd be able to hang with you. Um, but <laughs> I am uh, I can piece together. It just takes me a while. I, I'm not as good. Actually, I took four years of Spanish at Morgan Park High School and I comped out of the language requirement for undergrad at the University of Illinois at Urbana. So I, at one point, I was really good at conjugating verbs. And yeah. uh, I was also good at using profanity from time to time. Uh, because, <laughs> because, you knew the language. <laughs> yeah, because of some of my friends at MP High. But uh, the one time, real true story, one time I was serving at a church in Rockford while I was in divinity school in the church. Uh, had a growing Latinx population around it, and we were doing some street evangelism. And I was able to hold a conversation uh, with the with the man and his daughter. But since then, oh, I don't know. I don't, and so I use it. I used a little bit of it yesterday, but I, I'm swimming in an ocean, bro. So y'all need to help me. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to help, brother. We'll make sure to help. Elizabeth, ¿cómo estás? Good. How are you doing? I am well, sister. I am well. I am glad to be... You know, Elizabeth, you're outnumbered here. Normally, I'm in a room surrounded by New Yorkians because of you, but today I got you outnumbered. We're, we're Chicago deep today. Well, let me tell you something about being outnumbered. I remember being in Guadalajara, Mexico, and I was asked to speak to a group of more than 850 men. And it was the first time in their history that they had had a woman on the podium. And... The general secretary who was introducing me and bringing me up, escorting me up onto that podium, because they were obviously doing something very different in their tradition, um, he welcomed me and he said, sister, please don't be afraid. And I looked at the audience afterwards as I began speaking with them and I said, I'm not afraid. I said, but it looks like you all are afraid because you only let one of us in at a time. <laughs> 
That's a good word, sister. That is a good word. Hey, listen, if you're new to the podcast, let me tell you, let me welcome you to a mixed space, a space where people live in the hyphen, ni that ki, ni that ya. I also want to tell you that we are continuing a webinar series that we're doing in conjunction with the podcast. We're doing this in partnership with Passion to Plant, a church planting and revitalization and planter support network that works primarily with black and brown individuals to help them as they consider their call to church plant. If you missed the first webinar, don't worry. These don't build on each other. You can jump right into the conversation at any point. And the next webinar is actually on April 19th at 6.30 Central. We'll be joined by our brother, Dr. Eric Rivera, who's going to be speaking with us today. He'll be adding to his thoughts in that webinar. Pastora Sara Gautier over in Boston will be joining us. Dr. Ephraim Smith and his wife, Denisha Norwood-Smith, will also be joining us for the conversation where we talk about the hardships of church planting, some of the realities of how that can be difficult. So if you're going to join us for that very real conversation, go ahead and get registered at worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. That's worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. All right, Dr. Dates, I have a question for you regarding some of your background with the tradition that you're that you're living in over on the south, uh, south side of the Chicago area. When did you come to believe that the black tradition was something you wanted to protect and cherish. Talk to us a little bit. I've heard you say something public in, in conferences about this, about wanting to protect that tradition. Uh, talk to me about when you became uh, committed to that, protecting that tradition or cherishing it. Yeah. So I did not know that it was something to be protected until I realized that it was something under assault. I guess sometime in divinity school, which would have been the early 2000s, uh, the middle part of that decade, actually, it occurred to me that so many of my uh, black brothers and sisters who were uh, matriculating in white spaces, white evangelical spaces, were coming back with a hard critique of the faith once and for all delivered or that once and for all delivered black people. Uh, and there was such a kind of venom in the writing, in the, the preaching, and in the assessment of the Black church. Uh, and it was so frequent that it, it struck me that some of that was a consequence of the way we were being educated. Um, and, and so at that point, I, I did not know, to be honest with you, that my orientation in church was so warmly set in the pocket of my heart that I almost viscerally responded well before anybody would have come to hear me on a national platform. I, I just viscerally responded in, in the classroom and in personal relationships and in private conversations. Then as I graduated um, and I went, I never left the black church tradition, but I went to serve at a really, really large black church here in Chicago. I got to experience in theological categories, the richness of the tradition in ways that were not explained in the classroom in seminary. And so organically, I guess you could say, Emmanuel, that, that something happened um, to make me feel the urge to help people coming behind me anchor themselves, continue to anchor themselves in the black church tradition. And not only that, but also a sense of responsibility 
as I was given an opportunity to serve and lead a local church, a responsibility to cast the best of our tradition, homiletically, theologically, and ecclesiologically for that matter. So I can't give you a day or time. I just remember when I recognized it was under fire that, that something came alive in me uh, that did not want to retreat, but wanted to stand guard. Brother, that's really helpful. I, I have a question regarding your, your studies then, because you pursued history, correct? As your PhD or doctoral studies, is that right? Or one could say that it pursued me. Yep. <laughs> I don't know that that's any, uh, I don't know how many pastors, ask your pastor, I don't know how many pastors willingly go through a PhD program um, to, as a, unless they're like a <laughs> for punishment. It, it's the kind of thing that in this phase of life, it the Lord assigns it to you and you just go with it. It's a calling like everything else, my brother. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm about to start that calling, so pray for me, brother. Oh, yeah. Well, here's my question. You pursued history. Did you uh, did you know right away in your PhD studies that you would be focusing in on, on the Black tradition as part of that uh, defense of it, as part of your kind of awareness that I needed to defend it from these assaults? I, I did. I did not go into history, though, to defend it. it, it my work is not it did not start off as a, in defense of black church history. It was more so uh, an opportunity for me to catalog a piece of history uh, because the scholarship is the pool of scholarship for black church history is not big. It's bigger than it has ever been, but at the time it, it was not as big. And even in its scope, it was the, the portion of the garden from which I emerged was underrepresented. So I was really just trying to make a contribution, to be honest with you. And I have a mind that is fascinated by history, all types of histories. But I knew that in order to uh, provide some context for people coming behind me, as well as to be prepared for my sense of ministry, I needed to understand the, the theological development historically. And so it, I wouldn't say it was motivated by a defensive history. I would say it was more so my curiosity to make a contribution that led to that scope of study. Yeah. Now that curiosity led you to invite uh, Brother Eric to to take up an opportunity to teach. Can you tell me a little bit about about that moment where you invited him to to, to join you in this? Yeah. No, I think Eric saved my class that semester. I I don't know that. Um. And I true real talk, real talk. So I was assigned. Um. I, I wanted to do a a course on African-American church history, right? Cause I just studied that. And the chair of the department was adamant about it being um, black church history and Latin ex church history in America for which I just was not equipped. I mean, at the time you finish a degree program like this, Emmanuel, which you'll discover, you just, you cross the finish line like a runner and you just collapse. And you don't want to pick up nothing else. You don't want to do nothing else with it. Just let me be for a little while. Well, I went right in after graduating. And uh, and so I knew I couldn't do it. So I, you know, this, that's what good friends are for. You call people for favors, <laughs> big favors. And so I called Eric and to my, to my delight, he responded positively. In fact, uh, if I remember his response accurately, he was grateful for the uh, the opportunity to bring some awareness of his cultural background to the classroom uh, 
because even at, at a school like Ted's, not only was my story underrepresented, his story uh, was underrepresented. And so if you know anything about Eric too, he's not a slouch. Uh, so his work is going to be thorough and he's probably going to do way more than he's able to actually talk to you about. So I remember sitting in the back of the classroom that day saying, man, I, I can't believe that I came through a program and didn't hear some of these names and some aspects of, of these stories. And so then I think I pulled on this coattail and just said, man, I, I think more work from your angle needs to be done here for the benefit, not only of your community, but for mine. So it ended up saving the class because the class could live up to the name, the title that was given it. Otherwise, my students weren't going to get it. And and I, I'll be honest with you, too. I sometimes it's it's not if you know where to look, if you know who to call. I didn't know where to look, but I had I had the blessing in knowing who to call. So I leaned on him, added some burden to his uh, to his work that semester. But he came through and delivered. Yeah, Eric, let me ask you, what started that journey for you? Was it that conversation with Charlie where he asked you to to look historically at the at the Latino church in the U.S. or or was something else? What what brought you to a kind of cultural awareness that said, hey? This is important, and I need to cherish this history as well. Yeah, yeah. Charlie's being far too gracious uh, with those kind words. Um, you know, it was—it really was an honor to step into that class and teach. But the truth of the matter is, when when you called me, Charlie, I I, I felt very much like I'm I'm the wrong person uh, to call for this task that you're asking me to do. In, in fact, you 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 uh, posed the question broadly initially. You said something to the effect of. Hey, I I need someone to teach this class. Do you know somebody? And um, you were you were kind of poking at me, but uh, but I wasn't I wasn't feeling that poke. So I was thinking to myself that I said, you know, I, I'm not sure, but I'll give that some thought. And then you said, let me rephrase my question. Can you teach this class for me? <laughs> and uh, he was and he, it was urgent. He was desperate. He he messed me up with that question because. Uh, because he, he sensed the reluctance in my voice. I felt ill-equipped for it. But then, uh, Charlie, you told me something that, that I'll never forget. You said, if we don't tell our mm -hmm. stories, who will? Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I couldn't say no as much as I wanted to. And it, it set me off on a more uh, in-depth study of, of the history of the Latino church here in this country. And um, it, it, in that sense, in terms of research and study, that was the impetus to, to get me looking more seriously. Now, my own personal journey um, goes back even years before that, because I mean, I was raised in, in a Spanish-speaking small brethren church uh, in Chicago's Northwest Side, um, but I'm not fluent in Spanish. And as a Puerto Rican who's not fluent in Spanish, in a Spanish-speaking church, in a diverse context, there's a sense of, of cultural identity that gets lost and gets confused and you feel like a, like you're marginalized even among your own peoples and and then I'm going to which a, makes a you white, isolate yourself more from that history. Exactly. And then I went to a white Bible college, white seminary predominantly and and there's a bit of a cultural and an identity crisis and struggle that I had that God uh, brought more to my attention as I was concluding actually my my master's degree. Uh, and that that's when things that are really, you know, God started opening my eyes to say, hey, you have something to contribute here. And some of the insecurities you have in terms of who you are as a Latino, um, you need to you need to kind of 
lean into those things and really embrace the way I've made you. And, and, and so my studies um, began to look a little different, even my own interest, even as a pastor. And so, yeah, uh, Dr. Dates, when you, when you reached out to me, that was just a, another significant step, though, in that process for me. And, uh, man, I, I praise God for it. I, I haven't been the same since. You haven't been the same since. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about where that took you then. Because when you're not the same since, it means that you don't continue on the same path. You take a different path. What was that different path? How did it affect your ministry? Well, I think being in, in the white spaces for so long, I, I, uh, I, I began to really love and appreciate much of what um, the white context had and, and taught me. Um, I studied Reformation theology for my PhD, and, and I, I really grew to love that. But in some ways, in, in the absence of understanding the depth and beauty of my own tradition. And so what changed in me upon the invitation to teach that class was I dove in deeper to my own tradition, my own ethnic tradition, and, and more of what Christ has done in the Latino church um, from, 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 for centuries. And I began to really appreciate and treasure and admire and, and feel a sense of like, why, why haven't I been told about these things? Why don't I know? Why aren't these common stories in our, in our context? And, and in that sense, I haven't been the same because I want people to know that there is a richness and depth to the, the to our story as Latinos in this country and and, and even beyond. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the things that I haven't been the same about. Um, talking more about those stories, wanting to learn more, research more, and incorporate some of the things that I valued from our the tradition that I learned into even our our own work here at our church. Say more about pastor. that. Yeah. So I think um, in some of my upbringing, in some of the context I was educated in, I'll, I'll be real frank. I mean, I've never had a Latino professor in all my days of Bible and theological training. And that's, that's a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and PhD. And um, that, that's a problem. And were these schools all white evangelical schools within the white evangelical tradition? Yes. yes. And, um, okay. and, and, and to, to, to press in on that, there were none in the biblical and theological departments on faculty at all. It's not that, it's not that they were there and I didn't take them. They just, they weren't there. Um, I think some things have changed in, in, in both of those institutions, but, and I, and I do praise God for that. But um, one thing that was either implicitly or directly told me was, well, the reason we don't have any on faculty is because these kind of people don't exist essentially. And what I came to learn is they didn't exist in those traditions. I got to hold on to myself. I, <laughs> I got to hold on to myself. Go ahead, say it, but I'm yeah. holding on to myself. Jesus, the help me. Go ahead. They didn't exist in those traditions, but I, I took it as in they don't exist. Um, and it, and it's it both in the black and brown tradition. And so, yeah, so that those are the assumptions I worked off of. And so now as a pastor, I realized, okay, that, that couldn't have been further from the truth. And um, hello. <laughs> And, and so uh, as, I, as I lead our church, I want, I want our church to understand there, there not just has been a rich history, but there is currently uh, a beautiful harvest of people like you, Dr. Dr. Elizabeth, and others who have blazed trails generation or generations ago 
I thought I was blazing a trail, but my go ahead, call me vieja. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> seasoned, you're seasoned. Yo te cojo después. <laughs> I thought I was blazing a trail by starting the PhD, and I realized, oh wait, this this there's a well paved trail I'm walking on here. I just didn't know it was there. That uh, that experience of becoming kind of aware of the fact, I, I also felt that way. I when I showed up to Bible college, I also thought, man, I'm I'm leading the way. No one in my church has done any of this training. And then you know, as I as I meet people like Dr. Conde Frazier, Robert Chat Romero, and others, I go, wait, what a minute, this is, this is. There's a whole kind of um, there's there's a whole tree right uh, that that had that I have roots in that I didn't know was even you know anywhere attached to me or that I was attached to it. Um, Dr. Dates, I want to ask you about that as well. Um, you mentioned earlier theological uh, framework as you were kind of pastoring that you became aware of and started to flourish and, and kind of live in homiletics, preaching. What are some of the marks of the black church that are important to you? Some of the ones that you're looking to expand in your own church? Uh, can I say something about what Eric just said first? It, uh, so, because I remember asking about the dearth of black professors uh, at our shared institution. And I was told the same thing. You, you know, we, we would do it. We, we would hire them. We just, we don't know that we, we don't know where they are. They, and, and I remember thinking to myself, I know people right now uh, who, who you, you could call. Now you can't pay them $2 a class, but, but I know people right now who could do it. And, and now it's worse because you know, just on, on one side, I think you got Dr. Wallace Baxter, you have uh, Dr. Uh, Andre Kirkland, you got Dr. Watson Jones coming out, you have uh, Dr. Name some women, please. Sure, Name some Walter women, Strickland. too. I, but I'm thinking who emerged from these institutions. So I, I don't know many black sisters who came from, who emerged out of white evangelical institutions. I do know. We're going to look at that. I do know moment. black sisters who have earned doctorate degrees like Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Dominique Robinson, uh, Dr. Nichelle Guidry. Uh, I, I know some, they didn't go this route, but, but my point is people who they said came through those institutions. But even now with, with the names that I called, they aren't necessarily being highly sought after to fill some of these teaching faculty positions at, at these institutions. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I came to discover, what I feel like I've come to discover is what, what they were saying is, uh, we don't know black people who are like us. And for that reason, they are not here. And like us means not merely theological convictions. I mean, cause that, that is what it is, but sociological convictions, political convictions, and all of the trappings that can come with, uh, white evangelicals, white evangelicals. So, mm -hmm. and with not being white, not being we're talking about oh, racism yeah. here. No, hands down. We're talking about racism here. Hands down. So I, I see now a part of the reason why they said that it's not because what they were looking for wasn't there. It's, it wasn't made in their image and after their likeness. So, um, so it. to your question, uh, Emmanuel, what are, what are things that I, I came to know and discover? I must admit, you know, having grown up at the Mount Calvary Baptist Church, 1257 West 111th Street in Chicago, and then going to um, Canaan Baptist Church, 402 West Main in Champaign when I was in school there, 
serving at New Zion Rockford, 604 Salter Avenue. You see how these these addresses even are are blazed in my mind. I have an, an existential knowledge that comes simply from being a son of the soil. So I don't think that I learned anything new so much as I learned uh, a broader scope and context of what I already understood, what I had already experienced. And so I, I came to know names, yes, stories, yes, but none of it was like unfamiliar to my experience. It was just more so um, on printed paper at times. There's a lot of our tradition in the African-American church experience, a lot, not all, is orally shared. So the, these mm -hmm. are people and sermons and, and stories that are told, but they are not necessarily written yet. And, and I got some great ones, even that connect to how President Obama was first told by a black pastor in Chicago at 83rd and Damon that he would be or could be the first black president. That came through the black church. It's not written anywhere. And Mr. Obama, I just, I've been reading his biography. He didn't write the story, but these stories of how the black church and black preaching has shaped and reshaped America live in my head because eyewitnesses very often have taken the time to share them uh, with us. So that's what I, that's what I learned. The story of, of our kind of a thriving in America, our protection of black America, the liberation of people for the flourishing of humanity. Those are things that, that I knew, but, but I didn't necessarily read. And some of that too, I need to say this is because, and this is part of the reason why I wrote what I wrote. A lot of the black preaching tradition and a lot of the black church tradition has been written about largely by the East Coast Academy. And anybody who studies black church knows, you know, names like Henry Mitchell and Cleophas LaRue uh, and now Frank Thomas, Evans Crawford. Um, you, you know that, you know, steps away from Carter G. Woodson or Frederick Douglass come um, and James Cone come from people who were on the East Coast at top tier schools. Now, the reason for that, of course, is because even Dr. King went to Boston. That's where we could go to school. We, we were not permitted to go to other places. And not to say that if they had gone to other places, that would have somehow saved them or, or made them better. It's just that's where they went. So when they went to those schools, yeah. And those are the presses, the publishing houses that opened to them. And with that came a kind of theological bent that may not have necessarily reflected the grassroots black church in and around different parts of America. So I wanted to write from the grassroots perspective of middle America. I, I wanted to say this is what it was like in Chicago with historic documented witness that does not per se aim to contradict what was written from the East Coast, but it fills in the gaps. It just it just says, hey, this part, you know, what oh, yeah. And specifically important for me was here is a piece of scholarship that explores black preaching that was not developed by shaped by or undergirded by whiteness. 
and yet its story needs to be told. So even though I wrote it within a white evangelical academic setting, the story itself was not made by white evangelical anything. Let me ask something about that, and then we'll take a quick break. So I have a question related to that last comment for both of you. I'd love to hear from both of you. In, in light of the ways in which, uh, Eric, you're becoming kind of aware of the realities of how your education shaped you, Dr. Dates, you've, you've mentioned the same thing. Um, how do your two congregations relate to white evangelicalism today? Mm, Eric, go first. <laughs> <laughs> I saw how he did that, Eric. Go ahead. He did that real quick too. Well, I think I think um, for one is tr- trying for, for one to to not um, become overly critical toward without saying okay, there, there's there's a relationship here. Um, I think one thing. I mean, we're part of a, a predominantly white denomination as a church. Uh, that's something that that we stepped into knowingly. Um, we, um, yeah, we, we, so we relate in, in, in these kind of denominational ways, but there are ways we, you know, and, and we try to partner with uh, at different times and in different matters the, the church plant to, to reach the community. Um, but in a, on the other hand, um, we do realize there are some significant distinctions culturally, uh, traditionally, that make it difficult to, to partner with and difficult to, to uh, link arms with. And, and so I think in those ways, we, we realize, okay, we, we got to go a different route in how we're going to pursue ministering in our community or doing works of mercy in, you know, in Chicago. Um, and so I think I, I try to take a both-and approach in terms of partnering where we can and, and doing so gladly, knowing, though, that there are spaces that we just we can't do that and, and it'd be too, too difficult. Um, and so I guess those would be the, the big, the kind of big overview ways that I would see our relationship to the to the white evangelical church. Uh, like I said, I know for me personally, I've, I've been very influenced by it, and uh, positively and negatively. And I try to, um, I try to maybe honor the the positive, while being also very outspoken about the negative, and saying that that's. That's how it is. So as, as in our local church, um, I, I sense our, our people do realize that um, we are uniquely, predominantly Latino as a church, identity, culture, which is very different than many what white churches would experience. But but there's also a sense of like, hey, those are brothers and sisters that we want to partner with however we can, when we can. Uh, so I guess in, in broad strokes, that's how we, we interact and relate to the white church. I would uh, I'd, I'd need to echo some of what Eric has said about me personally. Uh, but, you know, your question is about how the church relates. And I, I think in general, my church uh, by stewardship, it's God's church by ownership. My, my church understands that there is not going to be a black section of heaven, a black church section or Latin X church section or white church section. So theologically, we are compelled and saved by the same gospel. So I don't know that there are a lot of theological, at least propositionally so. And what I mean by that are just statements. I don't mean the way that the theology is practiced or lived out. But I don't know that there's a lot of theological discrepancy 
for having a high view of scripture per se, or a high Christology. The problem uh, for my church is the, the practical implications of the theology. And so politics and economics and um, sociology, housing, for instance, you know, so our church sits on a fault line in Chicago. It had been, it's, it's diminishing a little bit, but just west of us, maybe four blocks is the Bridgeport neighborhood. And that's the neighborhood where Richard J. Daly and Richard M. Daly were born and raised. Uh, Richard J. Daly especially was not friendly to black America, not friendly to Dr. King. And so there are many, and Dr. King preached at this church, there are many, uh, or those who yet remain in their 80s who were part of the our church seniors who remember uh, the venom by which uh, the kind of white pulpit disavowed Dr. King when he came to Chicago for the Chicago Freedom Festival in 66. And the way that white pastors ran away from Dr. King, it would not stand with them. So there is a there is a visceral distrust uh, for that community in the upper age categories of our church. Now, that said, uh, we had a we're a progressive National Baptist Convention Church by denomination. We duly aligned at uh, my thrust and push with the Southern Baptist Convention, really the Illinois Baptist State Association, but by affiliation, the SBC. And they warned me not to do it. Uh, <laughs> our, our elders did. And, but I did it because, you know, I, I, as a younger generation, we want to live out. I, I felt that things had changed. And, and I wanted to kind of live out the, the implications of the gospel to go across ethnicities. And I was wrong. Uh, I, I was wrong. So we had a rather public uh, exit, as it were. And it is because I think some of the things I took for granted as it relates to theological orthodoxy were really political convictions that we could not align with. So that, that's my longer way to say it. I, I see the positives in one sense because American Christianity is a mixed bag, man. And, you know, we're not going to fix it all on our watch, but we had some shared convictions and we still have some shared biblical and theological convictions. It's the other stuff that our people are like, man, I'm, I'm not touching that with, with a 10-foot pole. That's right. Uh, I'd love to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk further about that, particularly about this um, the sense that you, you were wrong, Pastor Dates, uh, Eric, and, and the things that you're reflecting on as you think about. You, you said there are certain places where we don't partner with white congregations. We'll talk further about that as well. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back to those topics.
I would like to say something before my brothers continue, because we have to talk about white supremacy and how it runs deep in white Christianity. And we just have to put it out there. And then we have to talk, talk about theology and how theology is formed. Because theology is not something pure that comes out of heaven. And when we're talking about theology, it's white people doing theology. And yes, their sociological, historical, and political pieces are become embedded in their theology. And part of the responsibility and part of what we do as church, church does theology. When you all preach, you do theology. Mm-hmm. What is it that is different in your theology? I mean, the, the basic premises of Christianity aren't going to change. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about there are pieces that are just plain wrong, that are against the gospel. They're a part of white evangelical theology. They don't show themselves that way, but they live themselves out that way. It's a dismembered theology, what you were just saying. It's a dismembered theology rather than an, an embodied theology. And Christ, and that's bad Christology, because Christ is an embodied God who comes to be with us. And it's bad theology if you don't practice that. I was about to say, I don't think we need to talk. You, you could just do that. <laughs> and the whole issue of women is important. It really is important. I know too many sisters of color. My husband's African-American. We were pastors of an African-American church. And so I know too many sisters in both traditions that have left the church because they have a calling, because they, 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 they have a passion in them. And they have nowhere to go, right? So have we done anything with that? And that that whole patriarchy piece is a part of what it is to be white in America. It is a part of the, the Southern way of seeing life, the way plantations were put together and so on and so forth. And so it's a part of white evangelicalism. But we have thought that it's this, you know, pure peace, and it's not. So, you know, can, can we look at some things that we thought were pure, and maybe they're not so pure? And what you are saying about reconciliation, you can't have reconciliation unless these people become accountable. And there is no sense, it, and we have to confront. I mean, it's nice to say, yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're going to partner with them. But you know what? You can't partner if... if they haven't been confronted because they're not part, they they're not worthy partners. So I've been listening to both of you. Thank you for being so honest and so open about your experiences and uh, how you have uh, sought to navigate those and to to find your place and to help uh, communities find their place. That's that's admirable. That's excellent leadership. And I thank you both for that. How are you in your sermons and in your teaching and in your practices as a church community? You're in, you're in the midst of a community. What is it that your church represents? What is that theology like? Where have you seen yourself deepen and expand the tradition 
And I want to ask specifically, where has that challenged you or created a continuity of how you deal with women in leadership in your church? Well, let me take a shot at it first, because I feel like you've already laid it out. Um, it is it is impossible to argue when taking an objective look at American Christianity that Christian theology was used to was weaponized to dehumanize people who were not white. It's it's impossible to do. That's that's the reality of what it is, and. I actually think, therefore, that the salvation of the American church is accomplished by Jesus Christ, but the relevance of it is salvaged by minority theologies, by minority people groups, which is part of the reason why I think we're having this conversation today. I have gone so far as to say that I don't think that racism is an abnormal growth on an otherwise healthy evangelical theology. I think it's the root of a lot of that theology. And the reason I say that is because American chattel slavery, as we know it, was undergirded by theologians. And, and it was sacralized by entire denominations on the East Coast. So the history is indisputable. The, I'd also need to say that doctrine, the formulation of doctrine, and the relationship between doctrines, the emphasis at which we land with doctrine, really depends upon who's doing it. All right. So I don't want to propose that if all of a sudden I become the keeper of doctrine and formulate doctrine or the relationships between, between which, that it's going to be made wholly right. And I actually think that it is the doing of theology in community that helps us to land at a more accurate picture of God, a more appropriate reflection upon God's character. So I don't want to make the same mistake that, quite frankly, I think other ethnicities are culpable of and wrestle it all back my way. Now, I want to sit down and, and talk in tension with uh, varying ethnicities, with women, with people who live on the margins and say, let's pour over this together because God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and has left record of it in his word. Let's, and let's see where we come uh, to land. And I think the frightening part is, I don't know where we've done that well in the American Christian story. And, and, and I don't know what, what tremendous good has come from it. In fact, I see greater polarization these days uh, coming as more people groups wrestle with these tensions. And maybe it's because it's not fully done in community. So what am I doing in my sermons? I, I think if you were to listen to the body of my work, even over the last year, since we have been thrown into the public lynching of George Floyd, and now again, in one sense, in a court case, and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and we wrestle with this in Chicago with Laquan McDonald and so many other names that go unmentioned. If you listen to the body of my work, you will hear a pastor who is wrestling with history, theology, Bible and lived experience. I don't have all the answers, but I do have 
I do have the witness and testimony of, of my people who struggle with, quite frankly, far worse and, and left with a resolve, a greater resolve to serve the Lord Jesus and, and to preach the truth. It's amazing to me that the black church in America did not abandon the very gospel that was weaponized to marginalize them. They, they set even deeper in it. And part of that's because they had it before they came here. That's a whole nother story. But that what we see today with people rewriting the gospel, changing the narrative, is it, it makes for an impotent people. It's wholly unnecessary. So I, I think what you find in, in my preaching is an admonition uh, and an encouragement to our people to yet cling on to the truth of Jesus Christ because he is the one who makes us free. And I don't just mean that spiritually. I, I mean that uh, economically, politically. I, I mean that in every way as the impact of the gospel hits our everyday lives. And yet we live in the tension that all will not be made right in the here and now. All right. I just, that's it. That needs to be said. We will not treat each other the way fully we're supposed to be treated governmentally um, in the here and now, but because power and the, the prince of darkness of, of this present darkness, rather than prince of this air is, is yet skewed. And so we are fighting for a righteous kingdom, which will one day be fully made permanent. And we live in that tension between the already and the not yet. So you'll find that in my preaching. Uh, on on the the women piece, uh, I I think you know we're advancing. I, I don't have it totally right. I'm not a woman, and I'm not a womanist scholar. In fact, from what I understand, with womanist scholars, I can never be one, and I'm okay with that. But but what I try to do is to honor God in the way that I live before our people, take care of my wife, my mother who went home to be with the Lord last year, honor my mother, and to treat women in our context like they are gold because they are and so uh, in that regard our church has come to embrace women in pulpit ministry women in leadership we have two pastors here they're both men it's me and our associate uh jamal johnson and we invite women into and men into tough conversations to figure out where we're going. But we're farther along the line than we were when I first came, I think. And and what I mean by that is I'm not just reaching for um, a woman to do something because it's politically correct or because it's new and, and we want to be seen as avant-garde or we want to be a, appealing to a new generation. No. I, I want to do what the scripture says, because that's the rule and authority in the life of our church. And so, again, it's it's inviting people around the table of scripture to wrestle with the implications. And I've been wrong. All right, I've been wrong. I've been right. But I've been wrong in some places. And I can think of specific conversations where, you know, I've been making an argument and another man with the high view of scripture like I do would say, yeah, you might want to read that differently. You might want to look at that a different way. And, and so I stand before our church to say, there are going to be some things I'm going to get wrong, but I'm not going to arrogantly stand on it knowing I'm wrong. It, when, when I come as your senior leader, when I come into a, a better understanding, I'm going to push in that lane. But I'm also going to hold the line on what I know to be true. So that's a long answer to your 
long question. Eric? Uh, it's, it's, it's such a great question, and Dr. Elizabeth, and, and your, your contribution there, Charlie, amazing. Um, you know, that disembodiment that you spoke of, uh, Elizabeth, a lot of it happens too, I, I think, because some of the ways that, form, that theology has been formulated in a lot of white evangelical spaces has become very, it's become dogmatized in such a way that it lacks grace for those who have differing interpretations on things that are not primary to the gospel. And what has come of that is just um, divide, division and, and these ideas of supremacy, these ideas of, of, of um, pulling others away because they have differing interpretations on matters that are not central to the gospel. Um, and then, and then I think when when the, when theology is not done with that kind of grace and not done in community, we do lack uh, a perspective that people who are doing theology on the margins bring to the table. I I, I remember in preparing that lecture for for Dr. Dates' class, I was reading Manana and I was just so blown away by Justo Gonzalez's treatment of the Trinity, um, as as and how many Latinos emphasize the aspects of the Trinity in terms of the submission that Father, Son, Spirit have with one another to, to work out uh, our salvation. And just the perspective of, of this, this of, of loving in that way was a perspective that I think comes uniquely from those who've been marginalized, who understand what it means to love in that way of, of, of saying, hey, let's do this together. Whereas I think a lot of the Trinitarian teachings I received was more based on God's power and his, his providential work, which are true, but it lacked certain emphases because I think um, the voices of others who maybe not are in the same theological traditions uh, were, were cut out of that. So I, I think that disembodiment is, is, is truly, uh, truly dangerous. Um, and so in, in, my, in my preaching and in my ministry at the Brook, what, what I want to do is allow our people to understand that, that we as Latinos bring something to the table significant, something significant in our, in our shared experience, in our approach to the biblical text, in our expressions of worship. And what we've tried to do is, is just lean into the tensions because Latinos are not a monolith. There are differing um, experiences even among our peoples. I mean, we are a diverse church, but a lot of our diversity comes in the form of different Latinos from different backgrounds, from Cubans to Mexicans to Salvadorians, Puerto Ricans, Colombians, and, and the list goes on. And so what we, I think what we do well at our church is we are not afraid to have hard conversations, either from the pulpit in, in terms of what I teach, and in our, our, our groups that meet throughout the week, um, you know, studying our ethnic stories, seeing a biblical perspective on, on, on migration, loving our neighbors, uh, and in front of the pulpit, I, I try my best to lean into hard topics, to make statements, and knowing I'm going to get pushback, and knowing I'm going to get that email, or someone's going to leave the church that I'll find out about a month later because they didn't tell me that they left it, and and it's happened, and it's happened a lot the last mm. year. <laughs> um, but it, but, but just saying, like you were saying, Charlie, like I want to be someone who loves the Word of God, and I know I bring my own experiences into my approach to the text but at the end of the day i just want to be faithful to it and so um 
And that's how I want to lead as a pastor. And I think as a, as a leadership at our church, that's how we want to lead. Um, you know, I, I often, as I talk about this, I think about the influence of my wife on me as, as, a, as a pastor and as a man. And I, I don't know where I would be without her voice. And to, to answer your question about the role of women in our church, um, I have seen firsthand both the, 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 the deficiencies of leadership without the voice of women and the beauties of leadership with the voice of women. And so we, uh, we have uh, two pastors on staff, actually like you do as well, uh, Charlie is myself and my brother, Jeremy. Um, but as we as elders um, do lead and lead our church, um, we regularly bring in the voices of our, of our wives, of women, because we realize that um, our leadership perspective in and of itself is limited if it's just men leading. And so we, we do bring in the voices of our, our women to, to help us see things in ways that we, we fail to see. And, and we want to be proactive about empowering our women as, as teachers of God's word, as leaders, um, as, as those who have um, the, the various skills of, of counseling and, and the list goes on. And so, um, no, I know we have not gotten everything right. And, and we definitely, again, we don't want to, to change because culture is changing. But, we, but I know for me personally, I realize that some of the things that have been handed to me through my education, I look at differently now because I realize that they were given to me from a cultural perspective and lens. And, um, and so now it's caused me to revisit something and say, okay, I really want to understand what God's word teaches here to the best of my ability, apart from my theological and biblical upbringing. Um, would, that might've been come, coming from a, a, a white evangelical perspective that maybe I just don't see it the same way anymore. So uh, those, are, those are some, some ways I, I would respond to, to, to your question there, uh, Dr. Elizabeth. Thank you both, because you've been you've brought a sense of humility to what it is to be a people of God. And you showed how you embody that in your leadership and how you uh, help to facilitate that um, in your communities of faith. That's very important. What we get from what you've said is that one of the ways that we have to expand and deepen the tradition for the best of how we can express the gospel in our times and therefore leave a better legacy for the next generation that we are now in the midst of forming is to do theology in grace. Grace allows us to say that we've made a mistake to, to go back and forth, etc. but also in community. And I guess at this time we all strive to be able to, to uh, have those conversations which much, with much uh, greater community than we've had in the past. But I thank you both for... Um, your sense of humility that you have exemplified for us here today. I think that that is one of the best methodologies for doing theology. And we continue to sit at the table of the scriptures together. Brothers, thank you so much for your time. We want to wrap up here and honor your time. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you both as you continue to explore. Uh, Dr. Rivera, we, we love to see how you continue to, to make sense of what it means to, to be ministering in a Latino context. Dr. Dates, uh, your, your public open letter leaving the SBC left me, it left me shook, but gave me courage to make my own, my own sort of moves and considerations. So thank you, brother, as well. Let me give you guys a moment to, to, to give your, um, your parting words. Are there any final words that you have for the church that you'd like to encourage or share before we wrap up? Well, I'll say this for just my, my own approach, my own perspective with the Latino church. I'm so hopeful 
I see so many gains for us as a people um, learning, especially from my context, learning our identity, learning the value that the Latino church brings to, to America. And to me, I just get so excited because I see people like yourselves, both of you, uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel and, and, and Elizabeth, just doing this, this important work with World Outspoken and the Mestizo podcast. So I'm so hopeful. I'm so excited about what God's going to do through the Latino church in this country. And I, I'm, I can't wait to see what it's, things are going to look like 20 years from now, because I think the Latino church is going to be a, a pivotal part of the health and vibrancy of the church of our, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Dates? Sometimes I'm watching a, a movie that can get scary with the kids, especially for Claire. Charlie will ask a lot of questions. Claire will want to get up and run out of the room because she thinks the bad guys are going to win. Makes me recall when I was a kid reading comic books or that kind of thing. And when moments got tense, I flipped to the back of the book just to see how it was going to play out. And then I could go back and read through the other parts. Sit still. <laughs> I think the church is going to be just fine. We, we've we read the back of the book. This thing really does work out Amen. for the Jesus team. And so we play our part. We do what we're supposed to do in our epoch of history. And we leave the rest to God. So like Eric I'm hopeful because my hope is built on someone. He's victorious. Amen. We're going to come through. We may not get it all right in our era, but we're going to make it. So church is going to be fine. I'm looking forward to seeing what God's about to do. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Next episode, we're joined by Dr. Ariel Atkins. Uh, she's going to discuss Afro-Latinidad in Latin America and the U.S. We ask her to help us with the question, how do we elevate blackness without essentializing it? How do we elevate the African heritage of Hispanics? So join us for the next episode as we listen to our great sister here. Hey, if you have questions, doubts, concerns, uh, things you want to contribute to the conversation, leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Follow us on social media at World Outspoken. Follow Dr. Dates. Follow Dr. Rivera. And we'd love to continue to hear from you. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you.